Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is entitled Samuel and the Silence of God and is based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, January 15, 2006. Over the holidays, I watched a television special on the Discovery Channel that commemorated the first anniversary of the earthquake and tsunami that left 231,000 people dead or missing in Southeast Asia. Even a year later, it was surreal to watch home videos of rampaging rivers of debris sweep cars, trees, boats, refrigerators, and even entire houses through the main streets of villages. The program interviewed several survivors, one of whom was a boy about 12 years old. When asked to explain how such a tragedy could happen, he remarked, We have left our traditional ways, and so God was angry with us. He abandoned us. I think I am alive today to tell our people this. That Indonesian boy was engaging in a bit of theologizing that is quite common in Scripture. In any number of places, the Bible describes God as forgetful, ignorant, remote, furious, and even asleep. In the Old Testament reading this week, God is portrayed as speechless, as if he were unable or unwilling to speak. In those days, we read, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. We generally do not interpret such descriptions of God in a literal way, nor should we. We explain these instead unflattering depictions of God as anthropomorphisms, that is, paltry human attempts to describe him who is ultimately beyond description, and to articulate the common experience so poignantly expressed by that little boy, the loneliness of abandonment in a silent world. We can confidently say that Indonesia is no more wicked or deserving of divine punishment than any other country. And in the New Testament, Jesus discouraged linking human misfortune with divine punishment. John 9, chapter 1 to 3. But that little boy was on to something, I think. He was right to describe divine activity as mysteriously intertwined with human choices to picture human history as a dynamic synergism between God's call and humanity's response. History is not mechanistic, and still less is it meaningless. Instead, it's the interplay between the free decisions of people and the sovereign love of God. That, at least, is how I understand Samuel's assessment. The silence of God and the absence of visions he described were not just a subjective feeling, some poetic anthropomorphism, or a human projection onto their image of God. Rather, Samuel accurately described an objective state of affairs. That time was, after all, a period of political anarchy in Israel's history when, according to the book of Judges, every person did what was right in his own eyes. Judges 17.6 and 21.25. It was a time when the two sons of the priest Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were wicked men. They had no regard for the Lord, 
1 Samuel 2.12. People were not listening. God was not speaking. He was, in fact, silent. Visions were, in fact, rare. Having left their traditional ways, as the Indonesian survivor put it, God was angry with his people, Israel. It's a chilling thought to realize that God might grant humanity's request for autonomy, that he could honor our insistence that he leave us alone, or that he would stop speaking as a consequence of our not listening. Perhaps his last terrifying word to us might be, I have answered your prayers and now grant you the horrible freedom you have craved. Since you were so disinterested as to not listen, I will no longer speak. So from now on, the only voices you hear will be your own. But a single person can make a difference. Samuel proved to be the exception in this story. Dedicated to the Lord by his mother Hannah at an early age, we read that he continued to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and with men. In contrast to the silence that had fallen upon the land, God spoke to Samuel three times as a little boy. Jewish tradition says he was about 12 at the time. And he responded with his famous words, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. In contrast to the priest Eli and his two degenerate sons who flaunted their serial sexploitations in the place of worship, we read that, quote, the Lord was with Samuel as he grew up, and he let none of his words fall to the ground. The nation recognized him as a prophet who heard from and spoke for Yahweh. Eventually, Samuel would crown Israel's first king, Saul, but not before warning the nation about the oppression inherent in political power. By himself, Samuel ended the drought of divine silence in Israel, for we read that Samuel's words came to all of Israel. The story of Samuel and the silence of God reminds me of a saying from the early desert fathers in Egypt that emphasizes this decisive link between divine speech and human attentiveness, between God's call and our response between word and obedience. Like so many of the desert sayings, this story about Abba Felix begins in one place, but ends in another. Quote, some brothers who had some seculars with them went to see Abba Felix, and they begged him to say a word to them. But the old man kept silence. After they had asked for a long time, he said to them, so, you wish to hear a word? They said, Yes, Abba. Then the old man said to them, There are no more words nowadays. When the brothers used to consult the old men, and when they did what was said to them, God showed them how to speak. But now, since they ask without doing that which they hear, God has withdrawn the grace of the word from the old men and they do not find anything to say, because there are no longer any who carry out their words. Hearing this, the brothers groaned, saying, Abba, please pray for us, End quote. 
Perhaps the Indonesian boy spoke more than he knew. If there are no more words nowadays, to quote Abba Felix, if there's no more speech from God, if God seems silent in the words of Samuel, if he has withdrawn the grace of his word, that might have more to do with human refusal to listen rather than with the divine reluctance to speak. And now for further reflection, here are four questions. When and why have you ever felt the silence of God? Secondly, do you think we can assign a cause for the Indonesian tsunami other than a scientific explanation? What about Katrina or the Iraq war? Third, what are the dangers of claiming that God has spoken to you? And finally, is God speaking today? If so, where and how? My book review this week is of a book entitled Ethnologue, Languages of the World, 15th edition, Raymond G. Gordon, Jr., editor, by Dallas, SIL International, 2005, 1,272 pages. From Afala de Zalima, which is spoken in Portugal, to Zayudin, a dialect of Komi Permink spoken in the Urals, this new book, Ethnologue, has distinguished itself as the best single source of information about all the known languages of the world. Richard Pittman produced the first edition in 1951, a mimeograph version that identified 46 languages. This 15th edition raises the bar to 7,299 known languages and supersedes the 14th edition of the year 2000 with over 50,000 updates and corrections, including 103 previously unidentified languages. The purpose of the ethnologue comes closer to a catalog than an encyclopedia. It intends to provide a comprehensive listing of the known living languages of the world. That's no small task given the controversial issues that surround the nature of language. How, for example, does one define a language? What criteria differentiate a dialect from a distinct language? Or how do you track the 497 languages that are classified as nearly extinct and that face language death because they have fewer than 50 speakers? The ethnologue tackles all these issues and more in its introduction including such matters as deaf sign language for 119 different languages. After its introduction and overview, the ethnologue contains six major sections. An initial section presents general statistical summaries in a table format. We learn, for example, that although there are some 94 language families, only six of these major language families encompass two-thirds of all known languages and five-sixths of the world's population. Or again, Papua New Guinea is the most linguistically diverse country in the world with 820 languages for its 3.67 million people. 
Nor do these languages constitute mere sterile statistics. In one of the most volatile and war-torn regions of the world, for example, two of the smallest and least linguistically diverse countries, Rwanda and Burundi, are sandwiched between two of the largest and most linguistically diverse countries, Democratic Republic of Congo and Tanzania. The second section is the largest in the book. It lists all the known living languages by geographical area and country, including brief comments about the language based upon 31 different variables. For example, the ethnicity or religion of its speaker population, the related dialects, the level of bilingualism, age groups, and so on. I especially enjoyed looking at the language maps of the world in the third section. Here, a dot represents a language, giving one a sense of what you might think of as linguistic diversity density. Some parts of the world map are crammed and crowded with overlapping dots, while other parts have large sections where a single language or two dominates. The fourth section grocery lists the 7,299 languages alphabetically. A language code index assigns each language a three-letter code, which is now used by the International Standards Organization as the International Standard for Language Identification. Sixth, a final index lists the countries of the world alphabetically by name. A new edition of the Ethnologue is planned for every four years. In the meantime, you can go to www.ethnologue.com, that's E-T-H-N-O-L-O-G-U-E, ethnologue.com, for a searchable database of all the content of this print edition. Ethnologue, Languages of the World, 2005. For film this week, I review the Israeli-Palestinian film entitled Wall from the year 2004. In 2002, Israel began constructing a 400-mile fence, quote-unquote, along the green line that separates Israel and the West Bank. This wall, or fence, in fact, consists of 25-foot-high concrete panels, deep trenches, endless razor wire, guard towers, sensors, alarms, cameras, radars, and of course the humiliating checkpoints. It's only 50 yards wide, but in fact it symbolizes an immense geopolitical gulf. Director Simone Bitton was born in Morocco, educated in Paris, and resides in Jerusalem. Fluent in Hebrew, Aramaic, French and English, she uses the crude architecture of this wall as a rich metaphor for the political debacle of the region. Yes, in some sense the wall protects Israelis from terrorists, but of course it also imprisons them. It exacerbates the strife and partitions normal citizens on both sides of the wall, almost all of whom who were interviewed in this documentary hate the wall. One foreman, who was actually working to help build the wall, remarked, Without peace, this fence is worthless.
in Hebrew and Aramaic with English subtitles. Wall, 2004. And for poetry this week, we continue with Epiphany and a poem entitled simply Epiphany by Reginald Heber, who lived from 1783 1826. Brightest and best of the sons of the morning, dawn on our darkness and lend us thine aid. Star of the east, the horizon adorning, guide where our infant redeemer is laid. Cold on his cradle, the dewdrops are shining. Low lies his head with the beasts of the stall. Angels adore him in slumber reclining, maker and monarch and savior of all. Say, shall we yield him in costly devotion, odors of Edom and offerings divine, gems of the mountain and pearls of the ocean, myrrh from the forest or gold from the mine? Vainly we offer each ample oblation, vainly with gifts, would his favor secure. Richer by far is the heart's adoration. Dearer to God are the prayers of the poor. Epiphany by Reginald Heber. Thank you for joining journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, January 15th, 2006. And please join us every Monday for a new essay based upon the biblical lectionary, a book note, a film review, a poem, and now on a monthly basis, we also offer our music reviews. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.